There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've turned into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest this week is Bob Vanderplatz. Bob is president and CEO of The Family Leader. His passionate leadership for the betterment of America's family earned The Family Leader the 2010 Family Champion Award presented by CitizenLink in affiliation of Focus on the Family. Bob is author of Light from Lucas, a true story of how God uses the weakest among us to have the greatest impact. The book, recently updated after Bob's son Lucas passed away in November 2021, gives a poignant account of Lucas Vanderplatz. Although severely disabled at birth, his amazing story offers important life-changing lessons. Bob's most recent book, If 714, An Urgent Call for Revival, It's Time, is an urgent and compelling call to revival based upon 2 Chronicles 714, a passage that gives God's people a glimpse of his heart and a template for revival. Bob and his wife, Darla, have been married for nearly 40 years and have been blessed with four sons. Bob Vanderplatz, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Chris, what a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for having me. No, I appreciate your time. So, Bob, you're of Dutch ancestry and you're in Ireland. Now, I'm told that can only mean one of two things. <laughs> you're either from Pella in central Iowa or you're from one of several towns in northwest Iowa. Which one is it? Well, it, it depends. <laughs> I'm from northwest Iowa. And there's always a friendly competition amongst the Dutch. Okay. Uh, whether you're in Pella, Iowa, which is east of Des Moines, or you're way up in northwest Iowa, or even when I get to Holland, Michigan, but I'm up from northwest Iowa, a little town called Sheldon, uh, right between Orange City and Sioux Center. And tell us a little bit more about your heritage and your family history. Well, you know, I'm, a, I'm the baby of the family. Uh, I'm one of eight children. Uh, my parents' parents uh, immigrated from the Netherlands to America. And so I am authentically Dutch is when my son said to me one day, he said, Hey dad, are you a hundred percent Dutch? And I said, yeah, I'm a hundred percent Dutch. So then he looked at my wife, darling and said, mom, are you a hundred percent Dutch? And she said, yeah, I'm a hundred percent Dutch. And he was dating a girl at that time. And he said, uh, I have to keep looking. She's only <laughs> half Dutch. <laughs> well, why did Dutch families like your ancestors choose to settle not only in Iowa, but the places in Iowa that they did? Really farmland. Uh, they were looking for the best farmland anywhere. And so initially when they came to Iowa, they settled in Pella and Pella just has great farmland. And what they would do is they would welcome then other family members or friends from that community who they knew, and it really became a relationship game. And so then they'd come to Pella and they would buy up other farmland in that area. And then pretty soon the farmland got to be a little bit sparse. And so that's when they went up to Northwest Iowa, again, some of the best farmland in the world. And that's where they gravitated to, but it was really because of the farmland, because of family and really uh, the foundations of faith that really bonded them together. One of your college teammates once said, whatever you decide to do, you're going to give it 110%. Does that attitude and work ethic come from your Dutch upbringing or somewhere else? Uh, I, it probably came from a dad who also served in World War II. <laughs> uh, 
but you know, our, our parents, I mean, when I say our parents, my parents, my wife's parents, uh, they, they had a high bar of expectation. Uh, they wanted us to produce. Uh, they wanted us to achieve. Um, they believed from their faith again, that we were made to produce, you know, some of Jesus harshest, harshest rebukes, uh, was to those who didn't produce, whether it be the parable of the talents or whether it be the fake tree that wasn't producing fakes. Uh, so they really wanted us to produce and, but it also could be just out of fear that, you know, my, my, my creditors are going to catch up with me. So therefore, uh, I need to stay ahead of the game. You mentioned your wife is also Dutch. Tell us about the former Darla Granstra. How did you meet? And what were the early years of your marriage like as far as your careers and where they took you? Well, this is a very unique story, Chris, is that Darla and I, I believe we met in church nursery school at the age of about six weeks for the first time uh, because we, we grew up together. She grew up in Sheldon as well. We attended, our parents attended the same church. Uh, we went to the same school together. She was a friend of mine uh, long before I started dating her. Uh, it was a second or just towards the end of the first semester of our senior year in high school where uh, I asked her out and we started dating. And now we've been married for nearly 40 years. <clears throat> As I kid with people all the time, if Darla ever, ever leaves me, uh, I'm going to go with her. <laughs> <laughs> Since the age of six weeks, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's a unique story where... Uh, on Facebook, of course, where people like to do posting and stuff. And I forget, I put up something about our anniversary. And one of our grade school classmates said, here's a couple that really doesn't know life without the other one. And that's kind of us. So it's a very unique and rare story. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. You rose to the ranks of public education quickly, and you're a young principal in a small rural district in 1993 when the Iowa Civil Liberties Union filed suit against your district and another one to end student-initiated commencement prayers. Was that something that had been brewing for a long time? And why the Civil Liberties Union choose those two districts? <laughs> you know, it, it really just surprised me like crazy. And so before I was a high school principal, I was a teacher and a basketball coach. And then I, I came to the small school district, Marcus Meriden Claycorn, MMC High School. And one of the things you got to do when you're a high school principal is you have to lead high school graduation. So I wasn't all that creative, Chris. I just took the last year's uh, high school graduation program and I went through it and I kind of figured, OK, these are the spots we need to fill. And on that graduation program, 1992, uh, there was a invocation, student led invocation, and there was a student led benediction. And so I put in a student-led invocation for 93 and a student-led benediction. And after I did that, that became big news because now we were going to have prayer at the high school graduation. I'm like, well, this has been happening forever. And so then what we did is we had a class meeting and I think there's 35 graduating seniors. So it was a very small senior class. And I said, we're going to take a vote. Uh, if any of you do not want to have prayer at your graduation, raise your hand. And I want to, you know, I want you to be heard out. And it was unanimous. All of them said, no, we want prayer at our graduation. So we moved forward with it. And then we got sued uh, by the Iowa Civil Liberties Union. Uh, they took us to federal district court. Uh, when we got in the courtroom, uh, they cleared the courtroom because there was a bomb threat uh, because of this. 
I was on the stand for probably 45 minutes with the judge uh, because the judge thought I was trying to proselytize, force my beliefs on these high school seniors because uh, I went to a Christian school system uh, before I went was in the public school system as an educator. And so, and then my Dutch heritage, he played into my Dutch heritage as well about this is all part of my agenda. And they actually ruled against us and said, uh, you can't have prayer at the high school graduation. And I thought, oh my goodness, uh, we have gone so far on religious liberty. And so with a very committed board of education, uh, we appealed it to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Louis. And I got to tell you, Chris, it was like we won the state football championship. <laughs> I was actually getting a haircut in this small town with the barber. Phone rings. Uh, he says it's for you. It's a school board member. And this is before cell phone. So I get the landline, put it to my ear. And he's yelling, we won. We won. You know, we get to pray. at. And then also we had the New York Times. We had TV cameras. We had everything at this small high school graduation. Because there's going to be a student-led invocation and a student-led benediction with bare, basically generic references to God bless us. <laughs> so it's still kind of, I, I get a chuckle of it, but it's also a little bit how far we've gone. No, agree. And did that court ruling affect your career or influence the direction of your personal life at all? It, it actually did because uh, another high school, Sheldon High School, where I was born and raised, I did not go to their public high school. I went to a a school 15 miles away called Hall Western Christian. But Sheldon High School gave me a call and they said, uh, hey, we'd like to have you apply. We have a high school principalship opening. <laughs> and I said, you guys want to get sued too? <laughs> <laughs> but then I became high school principal for Sheldon High School. And so in some ways, yes, it did. Uh, but in a good way, not in a bad way. And it was during that same year and not long after the commencement, actually, that your third son, Lucas, was born June 13th, 1993. Did you know that he had serious physical issues before he was born? No, not all. Matter of fact, uh, Darla and I just talked about that Sunday night with our small group in church because I was able to kind of give a uh, light from Lucas' testimony for the sanctity of human life. And um, what we remember about that is that uh, we had two boys already. We had our oldest son, Hans, and our second son, Josh. Josh was two years old. And Darla remembered that Josh was a very active pregnancy. He was very active in the womb. And, and she said, so with Lucas, I noticed that it was much calmer, but I was okay with that because Josh was also a very active two-year-old. <laughs> so we thought maybe this is okay. And then when she informed me on Sunday, uh, June 13, 1993, that we we're going to have a baby because her water broke. Uh, we drove from this small town, Marcus, Iowa, up to our hometown in Sheldon, Iowa, about 30 miles away. And even the doctor then said, uh, the baby appears to be in breech condition. Uh, we could have it naturally, but I'd recommend C-section. And my first thought was, why are you allowing us to make a decision like this? I mean, I, you're a doctor, we're not. So we did the C-section, and right after um, they removed Lucas from the womb, the nurses rushed around. There was comments like he's not pinking up. Uh, then I remember the doctor taking me off to the side and saying, we just ordered a life flight helicopter because babies with issues do not belong in rural hospitals. 
And that hit me like a ton of bricks, you know, babies with issues, meaning that's our son. Uh, I'm a former basketball coach. I wanted my own basketball team. I had two boys. This would have been our, you know, our third son, my small forward. And now we're dealing with babies with issues. And so that started our journey with, with Lucas. And could you, could you describe his medical condition, please? Well, initially, uh, we didn't know, Mara, we didn't know for probably uh, 16, 18 months. Um, so when I got to Sioux City is where he was in the neonatal intensive care. Uh, the doctor came out to see me and he said, we don't know what we're dealing with. He said, we thought because of the large head, he'd have hydrocephalus. But after the scan, it's all brain. And he said, so it could be that your little boy just has an enlarged head, but with a frail body and his body needs to catch up with his head and he's going to be perfectly fine. He said that said he could also be uh, moderately to severely disabled. And he said he also could be, be dead within two days or two weeks. And so we didn't know what we were dealing with. I remember calling Darla from a payphone uh, at the hospital uh, and informing her. And I remember her question to me, Chris, saying, uh, Bob, what are we going to do if he isn't right? And, and again, you know, you, you start wrestling. What do you do? And, and my only response, like, because I'm the man, I'm supposed to be the tough one, you know, uh, try to lead the family through this. And the only thing I can muster up is, you know, we will get through it. Uh, and, and that's what we did. We got through it one day at a time. Were the doctors giving you any advice in the early days or weeks? Well, you know, really, no. I mean, we, and, and we knew because we had two older boys, we knew what normal looked like, what normal development looked like. We knew that Lucas was not following those patterns. Uh, he really needed to put on weight. So we did a lot of Pediasure. Uh, he was having seizures. So we had to do seizure medication. Um, and honestly, the diagnosis came from when I believe it was his third life flight helicopter ride, uh, after I had to resuscitate him and the doctor who was just on call that night was working on him. And he talked to us and he said, have you guys ever heard of a guy by the name of Dr. Dobbins out of the university of Minnesota? And obviously we had not. And he goes, well, he's researching, um, a diagnosis that I think Lucas shows a lot of these characteristics. And so then we got up with Dr. Dobbins and Lucas was diagnosed with uh, having partial pachygeria lysencephaly. Uh, lysencephaly really means the smoothness of a brain, which would be characterized by a very small head. But partial pachygeria means part of the brain is impacted and squiggly lines are running through the lysencephaly. And Lucas was characterized by a large head because it's almost like he had a fifth ventricle. And lysencephaly in and of itself is exceptionally rare. Partial pachygeria is really rare. But then the doctor said there's only one Lucas. Uh, there's, there's no pattern you're going to be able to follow. Uh, and so our goal right at that time was we want to maximize his potential, his independence, his dignified living the best that we could. And you believe that Lucas, like the rest of us, had a calling? Oh, without question. Um, you know, uh, for a long time, Chris, if I'm transparent with you and with your viewers, is um, I carried a lot of guilt uh, for having Lucas. Because uh, I thought, you know, uh, Darla's a saint. 
you know, her punishment growing up was you can't read for two weeks. And I was like, give me that assignment. You know, I, I won't read for two weeks. Uh, Lucas had done nothing to anybody, but I knew myself all too well. You know, I knew the man in the mirror and I thought this might be God's punishment on me for, you know, who I am. And so I had some transparent conversations with God. And then one day God led me to a passage, John nine, one through three, which you and your viewers might remember is where Jesus happens upon a blind man with his disciples. And the disciples have a cause consequence question. And that is who sinned? Did this guy sin or did his parents sin to create the guy's blindness? And Jesus's response still hits me where he said, no one sinned. And he said, this is so the mighty works of God can be displayed. And we've seen that through Lucas. And Chris, I believe the mighty works of God are not displayed in Lucas's disabilities. I don't believe they're displayed in his seizures or all the medical fragility that he had. I believe where God's mighty works were displayed is through a caring community that came around him, embraced him. Uh, America is a very generous country. Uh, we preserve life. We go all out for life. And so whether it be our country, whether it be our church, whether it be our community, whether it be our family, we saw God's mighty works displayed to maximize the life of a child like Lucas. How would you describe those early days and weeks and even months? What were they like for you and Darla? A lot of questions. Uh, and and the, the prevailing question is why? Uh, you know, why, why Lucas? Uh, why us? Um, and, but honestly, we were also tired. Uh, we had two older boys and now you have a child with all the needs of Lucas and your other duties didn't go away. I was still a high school principal. And so we were running to and fro. And, and so Darla put it really well uh, in Lucas's eulogy is that we just kind of did one day at a time. And, and by God's grace, uh, we didn't know what the future held. We just did the best we could that day. And a life that was expected to last only hours or maybe days became a testament not only to his endurance, but the love and care for him by so many others, beginning with you and Darla, right? Yeah. And, you know, for Lucas, as a matter of fact, uh, if there, there was a network created by Dr. Dobbins called the Listen Suffering Network. Uh, their slogan, I would not call it their mission statement, but their slogan was touched briefly for all of eternity. These kids just did not live long. And I really accredit Lucas's prolonged life till 28 years old as a testament to Darla. Uh, Darla graduated summa cum laude. Uh, she passed her CPA exam on her first try. She's exceptionally smart, bright. She's everything that I'm not. Um, and Darla traded all that in. She stopped working. But what she did is she dove into how can I get educated on Lucas? How can I help Lucas? How can I love Lucas better? I mean, so she, she went all in. And I don't want to say I was along for the ride. I just did my part, but I was really under the direction of Darla of how to do your part well. We also found out that with the medical community, especially with a condition like Lucas's, uh, they didn't have all the answers. 
And so Darla became uh, Lucas's best advocate, even in the, the, the most severe medical decisions that we had to make. And one example was uh, when we were in the University of Iowa hospitals after a full spinal fusion surgery, Lucas had developed scoliosis. That was going to be a major surgery on him. It's a major surgery on anybody, but when you have a kid with seizures and medical fragility already, it was going to be a major surgery. After the surgery, uh, two, three days later, on Easter Sunday, uh, they were removing the ventilator, so now Lucas would have to breathe on his own. And he went code blue. And there's a whole team around him, and Darla and I were by his bedside, and honestly, I didn't think he would ever breathe again. And the doctors, nothing was working, and all of a sudden, Darla, Darla shouted out a command, and she said, give him a bolus of Ativan now. And the doctor, Dr. Lamb in charge, this is a good doctor, great doctor, he, without skipping a beat, he said, give him a bolus of Ativan now. And Lucas came out. And what it was, Darla, Darla connected the dots. Um, this isn't just the ventilator being removed. Lucas is in a deep seizure. And that's causing him not to be able to breathe. And if it was not for Darla, we would have lost him that day. Because his brain disorder resulted in lifelong physical and mental disabilities that required 24-hour care, there had to be so many caregivers over the years. Mm. I'd like you to speak about them but especially wanting to share the story of someone who you be, who became like a family member of yours, Ruth Klein. Hmm. Yeah, let me try to answer that in order. First of all, the caregivers, uh, unbelievable caregivers, uh, nurses, doctors, uh, people in residential living where Lucas, uh, you know, would go to be served. Uh, matter of fact, at his uh, funeral, they were honorary pallbearers. Remember, they're actually the the, the pallbearers uh, for Luke's funeral. The honorary pallbearers were Luke's housemates. Um, but Ruth was somebody that I had just met uh, after the birth of Lucas. Uh, she was going to be the high school secretary for me when I just accepted a new high school position at Sheldon High School. And then she met Lucas for the first time. Lucas might have been two weeks old. And Ruth had never been married. And she was you know, a little bit older than us. And she just decided um, this family needs help. Uh, she didn't have to go to church and a pastor say, hey, you need to be part of Christian community. You need to get in a small group so you can serve. She just saw, you know, this family needs help. And so what she did, she invested in our family. She would come and take our other boys away so we could be alone with Lucas. She would come and she would stay with our boys so Darla and I could leave and get some respite. She would be at the hospital room. Uh, there's a biblical story about Ruth, about Ruth just went with uh, Naomi, just wherever you go, I'll go. And that was Ruth for us. And Ruth is still very involved in our family. And that's why in the book, I write, there are angels among us. And that was Ruth. And there, there again, God's mighty work was displayed through someone who's just willing to see a need and answer a call. And she would say, if she was on this interview, that she's been way more blessed uh, than we have been. Where does that depth of love and devotion that Ruth exhibited come from? I really believe it's a derivative of our faith. Uh, I, I believe we know that we are created for a bigger purpose. Uh, I believe God uh, has planned and ordained every one of our days before they came to be. 
I believe God not only knitted me and you and Darla and Ruth in our mother's wombs, but he knitted Lucas in his mother's womb as well. And so I think Ruth, it's just from her faith, you know, how, how can I be the hands and feet of Jesus? How can I love my neighbor as myself? What would I want to have somebody do if I were in that situation? And that's what Ruth did. And um, so we praise God for Ruth. Our boys still talk to her probably daily. Uh, I talk to her most days. Um, she's just been a blessing to our family. She's never married, but our family's become her family. Under normal circumstances, children almost always feel that one of their siblings receives more attention than they do. With Lucas needing so much care and attention, how do your other three sons react, especially in their younger years? That's a great question. As a matter of fact, um, it was a question that uh, I had a mentor of mine, uh, very transparently, uh, just talked to me. And he said, Bob, uh, Lucas has so many needs that you and Darla are going to get engulfed in his needs. And that's where your focus and your attention is going to be. And he said, and he goes, you're going you're gonna to cut Josh and Hans and then Logan short, Lucas's three brothers. And so I took that and I, I really just kind of mauled on that. And then we had, uh, after one, probably the fourth or fifth helicopter ride, uh, we had a doctor talk to us very transparently. He said, um, he's at risk at home right now. Uh, he said, you guys live on an acreage or 10 miles from the nearest hospital. Uh, you guys are doing great, but you, he's at risk. You cannot provide the level of care that he needs. And so at age six, uh, six and a half years old, we made the very difficult decision uh, to have Lucas placed into a residential setting in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, 70 miles away. And, but that's the place that could meet his needs, meet with excellence, and he'd have access to his full medical community as well. And we put on over 400,000 miles on the family suburban uh, between Sioux City and Sioux Falls. Uh, the boys would say that became our Sunday after church thing. We loaded the suburban, went to Sioux Falls. And uh, we spent the day with Lucas. And we spent a lot of other times during the week with Lucas as well. But it was a time that probably gave Darla and I a respite. Uh, it also, matter of fact, if I felt guilty at all, the first night we left him there, it wasn't that I couldn't sleep. It was Darla and I slept through everything. I mean, we, we slept like the, the responsibility was at least off our shoulder at that point. And how did the three sons deal with Lucas and just everything he was going through? Well, the boys were great. Uh, and, and God knew what he was doing. Uh, he had two brothers in front of Lucas. And then he brought us one, one brother that was unexpected, unplanned. <laughs> Uh, but, um, uh, with Logan behind Lucas. So Lucas was hemmed in front and behind. Um, but they did really good. Our, our second son, <clears throat> our second son, Josh in his eulogy, he made a comment. I remember when Lucas moved away to Sioux Falls and Josh probably would have been nine years old at that time. Cause Lucas was six and a half. And Josh said, I always kind of thought why, even though mom and dad explained it to us, I always thought I, I don't get it yet. And, but, you know, they, they were just always there for Lucas. And our oldest son said in his eulogy, he said, uh, being one of Lucas's brothers was the greatest honor of their lives. That sums it up. Yeah, it does. There was a point in your life as you were coping with Lucas's health 
where you had this distinct change of heart and it had to do with your faith. Instead of asking, why me? You began to say, why not me? Take us through that evolution and what caused it, please. I think part of it is where I walked you through a little bit earlier about John 9, 1 through 3, that no one sinned. Uh, the soul the mighty works of God can be displayed. Um, but let me tell you a story that really cemented that is that um, it was a Sunday. Uh, Lucas went into respiratory distress uh, after church and after adult Sunday school. And I had to resuscitate Lucas at church. Ambulance was called, life flight him to Sioux Falls. And that's when I was really feeling, you know, upset, mad at God about why you're putting this little boy through all this stuff. He's done nothing to you. If you want to take it out on me, take it out on me, but leave him alone. And that day, uh, when I entered the room, the doctor was there and the doctor asked me and Darla said, if Lucas repeats the scenario that happened this morning after church, do you want us to keep him alive? Or do you want us to let him go peacefully? And now I had a doctor questioning the worth of my son. And I said, obviously, we want to keep him alive. But then I walked out of Lucas's room and across the threshold and really having kind of, I would say, a, um, a pity party for Bob. You know, that why are we going through this stuff? And we're in the ICU. And I looked to my left and there's a little boy who's not disabled. He has no reason to be in the hospital and he's crying out in pain because some adult thought that the proper means of punishment was a lit cigarette from head to toe on his body. And I got to tell you, Chris, that really sent a message to me. It was like, it was like God shook me up and said, Bob, Lucas will always be loved. He's loved by me. He's loved by his parents. He's loved by his brothers. He's loved by Ruth. He's loved by the extended family. He will always be loved and allow Luke, the purpose of Lucas to be lived out. And so it was really a transition of thank God that Lucas was given to Darla and I. Uh, and I was also a high school principal, meaning I saw a lot of uh, teenage pregnancies or enough teenage pregnancies and thinking, you know, that would be a heavy burden for a teenager, you know, to have it. So then it, be, it did become like, well, why not me? Maybe we're the best prepared to do this. And then of course we always had people would come along our side with, you know, kind of the, the fancy slogans of, you know, God just doesn't, God gives special needs children to special couples, you know, and so it, it just kind of enhanced or emboldened our deal about let's embrace the life of Lucas and let's uh, try to maximize it for all it can be. I know that Lucas couldn't speak, but did it change your relationship with him at all? Uh, that he could not speak? Did it change my yeah. relationship with him? You know, Lucas could communicate. He could not speak, but he could communicate. Uh, meaning his smile would light up a room. Uh, his giggle, when we'd start up the car and he'd clap his chest. Uh, when I turned up the music really loud, uh, he would get all excited, arch his back, clap his chest. He was just thrilled to be in the moment. Uh, when he heard the voices of those that he knew, uh, you could see uh, his reaction to it. Uh, for people who tried to entertain him, but Lucas thought they were very boring, it was kind of neat to watch him fall asleep on him. Like, <laughs> and, it just, and so 
he was authentic. You know, I tell people it's not appropriate, but he would giggle as he filled his pants. You know, that he was just authentic. He loved being around kids. When kids laughed, he laughed. When kids cried, he laughed. He just loved being around kids. Um, so, yeah, Lucas had a, I always wanted to know what Lucas would say to me. Okay. And, and one day I'll find that out. Uh, when we get to heaven and I get a chance to be with them, you know, what a day that's going to be. But I want to hear his thoughts. Okay. But uh, he was able to communicate and express his unconditional love for Darla and I, our family, and many, many others. I suspect you'd agree that more of us should be saying, why not me? But it's hard to willingly shoulder more burdens. How do we look at our lives through the right lens so that we say, why not me more often instead of only thinking, why me? Yeah, you know, what I've said to people, and especially as it relates to Lucas, uh, but sometimes God's greatest gift to us and our greatest opportunity, the greatest miracles that we will experience is wrapped up in our greatest struggles, our highest hurdles, the things we never prayed for. But all of a sudden, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to serve. Um, I never would have left education. Uh, to serve people with disabilities had it not been for Lucas. I never would be doing what I'm doing right now with a family leader had it not been for Lucas. I never would have got involved in the political arena had it not been for Lucas. Uh, Darla, I, I, our, our boys, one of the things that we hear about our, our boys all the time is how compassionate they are. They're bright, they're savvy, they're, they're competitive, all that, but they're compassionate. And when they see somebody in need, they're going to reach out to somebody in need. And they're going to help them out. That means a lot to us. So there's a lot of things we don't want to go through, right? But it does, I mean, and then when you get to see the end game, and the end game is, you know, at Luke's funeral, when you get to see the eulogies of these three boys, because all of them want to utilize their, utilize their brother. But that was diamonds coming out forged under great pressure. And to us, you know, God had a purpose for Lucas. God had a purpose for Lucas and our family, as well as for many others. And so, obviously, we don't pray for children to say, hey, God, send me a kid that goes, that's going to need 24-7 care. Give me a kid with disabilities and can't walk. Can't. We never pray for a child like that. But now we're so thankful for the gift of Lucas as well, something that we would not have seen at the time. You've described Lucas as, quote, a dynamic blessing and a miracle. What is a dynamic blessing? A dynamic blessing, I think, is an unexpected blessing. Uh, I would have thought uh, the, the biggest blessing would have been a small forward who would get a Division I scholarship and win a national championship with the Iowa Hawkeyes and then get drafted by the NBA. That was my, my focus. That was my, my limited focus. Um, and Lucas taught me so much more than that. Matter of fact, Chuck Norris, the Chuck Norris, said to me one time, he said, Bob, I know you wanted kids who would compete. He goes, I believe Lucas is the most competitive kid I know. And he goes, but he's not fighting for a basketball game. He's many times fighting for his life. Um, so a dynamic blessing of how you can go through everything that he had to go through. And yet, I mean, the, the nurses that just stuck him several times because they couldn't find a vein. And we're going through the, the pain with him, the discomfort with him. And then the nurse walks back in 
you know, five minutes later after a vein was found to serve him some other way. And he's smiling and just, I'm okay. You know, he, he just had a great way about him that way. Um, and of course, when he could not do anything of harm to anybody else, but yet he could express his own love. Uh, he was a dynamic, but matter of fact, if I were having a bad day, uh, as we do from time to time, you leave work, you leave whatever and you're having a bad day. Many times Darla would tell me, take Lucas out for a walk because he had a way of centering you. And that that's a blessing in and of itself. Lucas's story is obviously incredibly moving. And for many parents, it just might be too difficult to share it. What gave you the strength and inspiration uh, to write it? Well, what interesting is that, uh, uh, being the man of the family, being the husband, being the dad, um, I at least told myself I had to be the tough one. I had to put up this shield. Um, Darla, the boys, they couldn't see me being weak because we had to get through this. And so therefore I had to be tough. And then what, what started to happen is that we would get the boys put to bed and there would be this time at night, you know, where I just had, and I started writing and the writing was very therapeutic for me. It allowed me to get my emotions out on paper uh, and I, I cried a lot, uh, writing and it was really intended to be a manuscript for our boys, our other three boys. So that when God would take Lucas home, that they would understand the journey and the purpose of Lucas. And then I had a, um, uh, persistent assistant, uh, who read some of this and she said right away, she goes, you got to publish this. She goes, this will help a lot of families. And so then we submitted it to focus on the family uh, through some other encouragement. Uh, their toughest editor uh, gave it two thumbs up and said, we need to get it out. And, and the reason they wanted to get it out, they said to us said that they had a lot of stories like this told from the mother's point of view, but very few from the father's point of view. And that they thought it would just bless and benefit. And it it did. It did exceptionally well. The book Chuck Norris approved Barnes and Noble recommended read went through a couple of different printings. Um, so anyhow, God blessed it in a major way. The chapter titles in light from Lucas are so inspirational that they provided the inspiration for some of my questions today. Hmm. One chapter is titled, it could be worse. <laughs> and he, here you and Darla are juggling careers, raising your other boys and caring for a child with a rare and debilitating brain condition. Some people would believe that, that situation couldn't have been worse. Hmm. Did that ever go through your mind? Well, it does. But I think God's grace is uh, he gives you a grace of perspective in regards. No, it could be worse. So, so for, for example, Chris, there were times when we would look at uh, a child who looks exceptionally normal, but they might have autism or they might have... And so they'd be bullied at school or they'd be whatever, you know, because they should have been normal, right? But they, they, they weren't normal. People saw Lucas in a wheelchair. Uh, he didn't get bullied. Uh, right away, he got sympathy. Uh, there's others who had children, say, 17, 18, 19 years old, and they were star athletes. Uh, they went to the prom. They did all this stuff. They got in a car crash, and now they're disabled for life. And all of a sudden that life was taken away from them. We didn't know Lucas any other way than this way of how God created him. 
but I really believe it's a portion of God's grace. Cause I think there's a lot of people who probably look at us and look at Lucas and go, Oh, thank God. That's not me. So for them, it could be worse. But for us, we look at other such situations when we go, you know, it could be worse. But that said, I had a high school, um, or excuse me, a college basketball teammate who attended Lucas's funeral. And he said, after the funeral and hearing you eulogize Lucas, Darla eulogized Lucas, the brothers, he said, the only thing that went through my head is, he said, gosh, I wish I would have known him more. You know? And that's where I think a lot of people, I wish I would have known him more. I would have been impacted. But that gives credence to the scripture that God will use the weak to teach the strong. And he does it all the time. The first edition of Light from Lucas book was published in 2007, long before the COVID pandemic. So you were clearly writing about something else when you wrote, don't wear masks. What was the impetus for that advice? And what is the lesson? <laughs> well, Lucas was 100% authentic. Um, uh, at church, he was authentic, uh, meaning he would get excited. He would, you know, maybe cry out when he wasn't supposed to. Uh, he was authentic in every situation. He, and there was no mask that you could put on Lucas to say, hey, he's all right. Um, so that authenticity really was a calling to me in particular, but to those around us, be more genuine, be more authentic. We're all wearing masks. We all say, yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm all right. We talk about our Facebook moments, our good moments, right? Our Facebook pictures. But what about those things that aren't so great? Uh, so let's just be real with people about where we're at. And we thought Lucas delivered that message loud and clear. Demands of caring for a child with such critical needs have proven time and again to be too much for many couples to endure. Marriages often break under such intense stress. One of your chapters is life is going to tear you apart or bond you together. I found that especially interesting because you seem to be speaking about simply the bigger picture of everyday ordinary life. You know, we often hear about reasons that marriages end, basic incom incompatibility, infidelity, money issues, substance abuse, and so on. But is there a root cause why marriages break? And what are the ingredients of a winning marriage? Well, I think, you know, the ingredients of a winning marriage is one is a shared foundation a heart of submitting to one another, serving one another. Uh, not what can I get out of this marriage, but what can I give to this marriage? Uh, how can I bless Darla? How can Darla bless Bob? And when you throw, I mean, we know that, first of all, that a lot of marriages in divorce because of financial stress. Financial stress, it's not turned out the way I wanted it to. So therefore, we're going to end this thing. And we're going to increase the financial stress, but we're going to end the marriage. We throw a child like Lucas in and all of a sudden that divorce rate goes north of 70%. And because not only does the financial stress get greater because there's all this medical stuff going on, there's all unintended travel going on. Um, there's also, whether we want to admit it or not, there's a little bit of, of the blame game. You know, we have Lucas because of you, or we have Lucas because of you. We have whatever it is. And Darla and I never did that to one another, uh, but we rallied around each other. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through it together. And as a partnership, we could get, I guarantee you, we could, neither one of us could have done this alone. And so we needed each other. And so it bonded us together. 
And, but there's no doubt. I mean, I just uh, visited with a, a couple not that long ago who has a child with significant disabilities and their, their daughter is very young. And he said, boy, Bob, he said, this was like you said, he goes, it was like a fastball through our picture window. This is not what we had planned. And we have shattered glass everywhere. We are both striving professionals. And now one of us has to give up our job. And, and his wife gave up her job. And he goes, but we're also finding we're just plain tired. And when you're tired, as you know, uh, when you're fatigued, it's easier to snap. It's easier to say things that you shouldn't say. And, and so that's why it's important that there's a, there's a shared common foundation for us. That's our faith. And when you're bonded that way. And so when people say, boy, it's very rare and unique for you and Darla to meet at age six weeks. Uh, but that also provided a great foundation for what we were going to go through. You've had such an interesting career that I'd like to get back to that for a moment. One way Lucas changed your life was they changed the course of your career. You left public education and became the CEO of Opportunities Unlimited, a Northwest Iowa agency that provides rehabilitative services for individuals with disabilities, such as brain or spinal cord injuries. Why did you feel called to make that move? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I was struggling with what's the purpose of Lucas. Uh, I was a I was a high school principal on a fast track. Uh, matter of fact, I had several calls about becoming superintendent in other districts. And I was being recognized by, by different colleges and search firms as one that should, you know, advance quickly uh, in that arena. Uh, but I was really wrestling, you know, you know, what's the purpose of Lucas? I mean, what, what are we supposed to do? What's, our, what's the call in our life? And then I had uh, a really good friend uh, who was very successful in serving people with disabilities. He was the CEO of another firm. And he basically said, hey, there's this firm in Sioux City, Iowa that really could use great leadership. And it's going to serve people with brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, kids with disabilities, but they need leadership to make that happen. And Chris, I turned it down twice uh, because I was comfortable. I was, at, I was at home in Sheldon. My family is there. Darla's family is there. I was doing something I loved, which is high school principal. I knew I could do that. And I, honestly, I, I was awakened one night of basically God calling Abraham to leave, to leave his homeland. And I just kind of thought, you know, maybe I'm supposed to leave and go to Sioux City. And I shared that with Darla. And Darla said, I think we are. And so, and so we did it. And th th it was a tough transition, there's no doubt, because leaving something that you love to go in something new and fresh that needed a turnaround at that point. Uh, but again, that ended up being one of the greatest things that we ever did. Uh, not saying we couldn't have been fulfilled and blessed in education, uh, but God really provided for us uh, in that scenario. And yet with everything going on in your life, it was during that time around 2000 or 2001, you decided to get involved in politics and you decided to run for governor. That's a big leap. <laughs> Why'd you take it? That's a huge leap. Well, what <laughs> it is, is that when I was leading Opportunities Unlimited, uh, then Governor Branstad came out and toured what we were doing. And we were being noted as a great turnaround success. Uh, matter of fact, uh, there was one uh, accrediting organization, the Commission on Accreditation for Rehabilitation Facilities, that called our model the model in the country. And so Governor Branstad wanted me to serve on a commission to serve people with disabilities better. 
And so I, I did that for one year under him. And then Tom Vilsack became governor and I was still under governor Tom Vilsack. And this was a volunteer role. I was still being CEO of Opportunities Unlimited. And I was in the appropriations committee in my third year. And I was presenting them a system of how we could change this to meet people's needs better at less cost. And it was a win-win for everybody. It was a win for families, a win for the taxpayers. It was a win for everybody. And I looked around the table and I thought, uh, the clue phone is ringing, but no one's going to pick it up uh, because it doesn't fit their paradigm. And then I thought, uh, I don't know if there's anybody here that I'd recruit to be a leader in my organization. And then I left that day and uh, I called Darla on my flip cell phone with an antenna. And she asked how it went and I told her how it went. And I said, they're not gonna do anything about it. And she said, so what are you gonna do? And I said, I'm gonna run for governor. And she had three words for me and they were not, I love you. <laughs> they were, are you nuts? <laughs> and I said, I might be nuts. I said, but I believe this so deeply in my DNA, I'm going to run for governor. And I put the pieces together and Governor Terry Branstad, who appointed me to that commission, he became an early encourager and champion of me running for governor in 2002. And uh, so that's what got me involved in the realm of politics. So you were the Iowa chairman for Mike Huck Huckabee's 2008 presidential campaign when he won your state's first in nation presidential caucuses. In 2012, he endorsed then Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum and he was languishing in the polls. He won your caucus. The Hill, which is a Washington political publication, has included you on its list of the country's 10 most coveted endorsements. What role do you plan on playing in this presidential cycle? Uh, hopefully to have it be an open and fair playing field for all of them, uh, be able to introduce them to our base and our base to them. Um, Frankly, at the end of the day, I'd rather not endorse. Um, uh, I've endorsed uh, three different times, as you just mentioned, uh, because of really good candidates and because of other things. Uh, all three were successful. Um, but our role in this is that we just want to really expose these candidates uh, to the values that our base holds dear. And we want our base to be able to question these candidates of what makes them tick. Uh, we talk about character, competency, and chemistry. Uh, do you trust this person? Because uh, if you don't trust them, there's no reason to move on. Uh, are they competent? Are they prepared to be president? Because being a president is a big job. And then chemistry, are they right for the country at this time? Can they bring the country together? Can they cast a vision that inspires? Those types of things. And so we're very, very diligent. Uh, we're intentional. Uh, I just told um, a media outlet, I believe Washington Post yesterday, uh, this isn't our first rodeo. You know, we've done this a time or two. And our base is highly influential. There's no doubt about it. That's because they care a lot. And so that's probably the role we plan on playing in this cycle as well. Uh, open and fair. And it makes sure that we introduce the two to each other. You know, we're at a point in our country now where I've said this on a few other shows, I don't think I've ever seen this country as divisive as it is today. And you mentioned right there, one of the things you're looking at for a presidential candidate is someone to bring the country together. Mm. We've only had a few candidates come out so far, but we know, you know, tis the season. They're going to start coming out soon and camping out in your backyard. 
is there a candidate out there that can bring this country together? Well, I believe there is. Uh, and there's not a name that I would say that is today. But the way, the way I see this, Chris, is very simple. I don't put it in a complicated lens at all. Uh, we serve a God of order. Uh, he, he's not a God of chaos. And the further we go from his principles, his precepts, his design, his creation, we're going to get chaos and we're going to get division. Uh, we're going to deal with the stuff that we're dealing with right now. So I believe a candidate that can cast a vision of we're going to do what's right because it's right. Uh, we're going to be, we're going to lift ourselves to a higher standard. We really are going to be one nation under God. I think a candidate who can do that and, and cast that vision in a compassionate, compelling way, that's what America is looking for today. You know, Reagan said back in 1979, when he launched his bid for president, that America hungers and thirsts for a spiritual revival. That was 1979. And Reagan was that candidate to cast basically an inspiring vision. I believe in 2023, going into 2024, uh, we're at that need as well. And so we're looking for that person to rise up to the challenge to cast that kind of a vision. Bob Vanderplatz, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing the incredible story of Lucas's life. I really appreciate it. Well, Chris, for anybody who wants to get a copy of the updated version of the book, uh, it's at thefamilyleader.com, thefamilyleader.com. Thank you so much for sharing that. You actually took that out of my closing notes. I appreciate that. <laughs> I took the words right out of your mouth. <laughs> exactly. Huh? Exactly. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.